If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. <laughs> Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. Top 10 Ways to Kill Your Husband The Wife My husband is the quintessential man who has everything. He is so difficult to buy for. His birthday was coming up and I wanted to get him something simple that would put a smile on his face. If it were cheap, that would be a bonus, as we were going through some hard times money-wise. My husband is a boat enthusiast. Boats can be quite expensive, to the point where some people in the industry say boat stands for bust out another thousand. And they are not wrong. My husband brought home a boat about a year ago. He spent a thousand dollars on it without even consulting me. He had been working on restoring that boat which, quite frankly, is beyond repair, and he had been secretly draining our savings account in the process. When I found out about the extreme expenditures, I blew my top and let him have it. I hadn't screamed that loud since the first time I had a Brazilian wax. The divorce word got thrown around quite a bit during that time, and I wasn't kidding. I had even gone to the extent of looking up the names of multiple divorce lawyers just in case. It was that serious. Things took a major turn for the better when he recouped the majority of the savings he spent behind my back by selling his baby. That was what he named his boat. His baby. I'm not kidding. It was difficult for him to do, but he had to decide between the boat and his wife. He chose me. He had been in a bit of a depressed state for weeks after the boat was hauled off by the new owners. I wanted to buy him something for his birthday that would cheer him up a little. I was searching for something online and ran across a book called The Top 10 Ways to Kill Your Husband. It was a gag book written by Steve Hudgens. There was a funny little story within, but the point of the book was the cover. The idea was to casually place the book somewhere in the house and see what kind of reaction he'd have once he discovered it. I thought he'd get a good laugh out of it, and he needed that. Our marriage needed that. Once the book arrived, I decided to place it on my nightstand and see how long it took for him to find it. That night, he was in a particularly grumpy mood. He had been thumbing through a boat magazine most of the evening. He was missing his boat. His baby. I encouraged him to go to bed early, and he concurred. I had left the lamp by my nightstand on so he would easily spot the book once he entered the room. I purposely waited several minutes before I followed him upstairs to the bedroom. When I reached the upstairs hallway, I saw my husband standing in the bedroom doorway. 
He was holding an object in his hand, but I couldn't make out what it was. What do you have there? As I got closer, I could see that my husband was scowling, and I was finally able to see that it was a lamp that he was holding. I got a great look at it when he smashed me over the head with it. I fell to the floor in a daze and he jumped on top of me, hammering me in the face with the base of the lamp, again, and again, and again. Top 10 Ways to Kill Your Husband The Husband I should have chosen the boat. It was a 1974 Tollycraft cabin cruiser. I found it sitting in someone's barn. They said it had been sitting there for over ten years. I offered the guy a thousand bucks for it and he jumped at the offer. Now, this baby was in rough shape. She needed a major overhaul coupled with some tender loving care. I knew my wife wouldn't be happy with me buying it, especially since I didn't consult with her first. But if I did, I knew we'd just get into a big fight over it, so I opted to forego the argument and just buy it. Quite frankly, if I could have snuck it home and hit it, I would have never told her about it. But a boat isn't an easy thing to hide. The restoration process was much more expensive than I expected, but I was determined. Actually, I was obsessed and started spending money on it like a madman. It was irresponsible of me, I'll admit it. When my wife found out, she was livid. I had never heard her yell so loud before. She was seriously contemplating a divorce. I guess I couldn't blame her, but she just didn't understand. I loved this boat. I was bringing it back from the dead. I felt like Dr. Frankenstein, only it wasn't a monster. It was my baby. My wife gave me an ultimatum. Her or the boat. I chose my wife and sold my boat to a buddy of mine. Man, that really burned my ass. I had put blood, sweat, and tears into that boat. I did all the hard work. Now my buddy was going to reap all the rewards. But I got most of my money I spent back and saved my marriage in the process. Still, I missed my boat. A lot. I fell into a deep depression. I don't think my wife realized how miserable I was. Or maybe she didn't care. She was so happy when I sold the boat. She all but celebrated, which to me was equal to dancing on somebody's grave. But I didn't argue. I let it go. I was hoping one day I'd come out of my depression and be happy with my wife and my marriage once again. And then I saw the book. Top 10 Ways to Kill Your Husband. It was sitting on her nightstand. That bitch. My boat meant almost everything to me. But I gave it up for her and for our marriage. And what does she do? She starts plotting to kill me. She even bought a damn book with instructions. What kind of sick maniac writes something like that? And where does she get off wanting to kill me? I gave up the boat. I chose her. She won. Oh, but that's not enough for her? She wants me dead on top of that? No. 
If anyone was going to do any killing, it was me. I bludgeoned her to death with the lamp that was sitting next to the book. As I buried her dead body in the backyard, I realized how much money I would save now that I didn't have to provide for her anymore. Definitely enough to get my baby back. The Fake Seance I don't believe in ghosts. Neither does my girlfriend, Tammy. Her parents, on the other hand, do, and feared that they were living in a haunted house. They had recently moved there. It was a normal house, nothing special, easily forgettable. It wasn't even that old of a house, but the previous resident died in the living room, so we believe that fact has led her parents to jump to conclusions. Her parents claimed that they had a poltergeist living with them. They insisted that they experienced some form of paranormal activity almost daily. Some of the encounters included doors opening and closing on their own, strange knocking sounds coming from other rooms, Disembodied voices calling to them, finding various objects on the floor as if someone or something had picked them up and thrown them. Shirts that were on hangers would often be found scattered about. They even said they walked into the kitchen one day to find all of their drawers and cabinets open. The thing that troubled them the most was the constant feeling of someone else being in the room with them. They'd sometimes hear subtle creaks of the floor as if someone just shifted their weight. Occasionally they would hear someone breathing behind them, only to turn around and see nobody. Once her father claimed to feel a hand resting on his shoulder. To me, I hear these claims and immediately write most of them off as natural occurrences with logical explanations. The rest of it could be chalked up to vivid imaginations. My girlfriend Tammy agreed with me, but wanted to do something that would help set their minds at ease, because she said at this point, they were really beginning to freak out. I was going to film school studying special effects specifically audio and visual effects. I immediately came up with a great idea and ran it by Tammy. What if we held a fake seance in their house? I'd set up a bunch of special effects and hire an actress to play the role of the medium. We'd then hold our fake seance with all the bells and whistles and the medium would pronounce the house cleansed of all spirits. Tammy loved the idea and hoped that after we put on a good show for them, maybe her folks would buy into it and no longer blame every little sound they heard on ghosts. Tammy asked her parents if they would be receptive to holding a seance. 
She said she knew of a medium that specialized in ridding houses of poltergeists. And her parents went for it. Evidently, they were up for trying anything. I immediately set the plan in action. A friend of mine from class was going to put together a five-minute audio tape of ghostly sounds for me. He said he would leave long pauses of silence in between each audio effect so that the actress playing the medium could do her thing. While I went to pick up the actress who would be playing the role of Madame Margaret, Tammy retrieved the audio equipment. She hid it in a discreet location within the room we'd be holding the fake seance in. When I picked up the actress, I was blown away by her appearance. She was dressed up like an old-time fortune teller with a sequined shawl and matching headdress. Her midriff was covered with a maroon sash. Her arms were layered with various bracelets and she donned gaudy earrings. We arrived at the house and Madame Margaret immediately took charge. This gal was good. She instructed us all to take our seats at the round table in the center of the dining room. She then placed an array of used candles in a large circle and more in a smaller circle within. After lighting the candles, she turned off the lights, sprinkled dried flower petals over the table, and took her seat among us. She instructed us all to join hands, close our eyes, and concentrate on the spirits dwelling within the house. I kept my eyes open. I didn't want to miss anyone's reactions to the special effects, but I have to admit, I felt compelled to do everything that Madame Margaret instructed. She was nailing this part. We all must concentrate on the spirits in this house. The spirits who are active and have been reaching out to these fine people. Concentrate on them. Concentrate. Concentrate. We sat silently over several minutes before Margaret began speaking again. I am speaking to the spirits in this house. I summon thee. We are reaching out to you. Join us. Again, several moments of silence passed. I looked around the table and not only were Tammy's parents totally into it, but Tammy was as well. Madame Margaret continued. We are welcoming you here. We are waiting for you. Are you here with us now? Show yourself to us. Communicate with us. The sound of knuckles rapping on one of the walls startled me, as it did everyone else. Welcome. We are happy that you have joined us. Another single knock on the wall made us all jump again. I knew this was all fake, yet I was still covered in goosebumps. Did you live in this house? The response was a single rap on the wall. Did you die in this house? Are you angry? Why are you so angry? 
Are you angry because someone is living in your house? Is this why you are tormenting them? I would like for you to disperse with the nuisances. A double knock. These are good people. This is their house now. You are gone. They want to live here and enjoy the house as you did. You will leave them in peace. They don't deserve your anger. You do not frighten us. We will not leave. A series of knocks followed by the subtle sound of moaning. I was surprised that everyone continued to keep their eyes shut. I thought someone would open their eyes by now. This was really getting spooky. You are the one who must leave. Leave these fine people in peace. The knocking on the walls persisted. I demand that you leave this house. I demand that you leave these people alone. At this point, Tammy started shaking the table with her thigh, which caused everyone to open their eyes. But Madame Margaret quickly got control of the situation. Please, keep your eyes closed and concentrate. Concentrate on the spirit. Do not break contact. Even as Tammy began shaking the table more violently, everyone closed their eyes again and went back into their trance-like states, and Madame Margaret began to wrap up the seance by speaking in a stern tone. Spirits in this house, I insist that you leave. This is no longer your home. Your torment must cease. Leave now. Leave now! Something fell to the floor and shattered, causing Tammy to stop shaking the table. And all went silent. After sitting in silence for about two minutes, Madame Margaret opened her eyes. She gazed over at me and gave me a playful wink. She then took in a deep breath and concluded the seance. You may all open your eyes now. The seance is over. The spirit is gone. Tammy's parents looked both exhausted and relieved. They thanked Madame Margaret profusely. I took Madame Margaret back home and gave her an extra 50 bucks for a job well done. She made a point to thank me for shaking the table. She said that really added some terrifying realism to the seance. I said, don't thank me, thank Tammy. That was all her. The next day while Tammy's parents were at work, Tammy and I went to their house to retrieve the audio equipment. Once we entered their house, I complimented Tammy on the idea of shaking the table with her leg. We had not discussed that in advance. She just came up with that on the fly. After I complimented her, I noticed that Tammy was looking at me with a confused expression. I thought you were the one shaking the table. I shook my head. I wasn't shaking the table. It wasn't you? 
No, it wasn't me. Could it have been Madame Margaret? It wasn't her. She mentioned it last night. She thought it was me too, but I swear it wasn't. As I tried to wrap my head around how the table was shaking, I began gathering the audio equipment. When I reached to unplug it from the wall, I noticed that the cord was still tied up around the device, like it had never even been plugged in. I looked up at Tammy. You plugged this in last night, didn't you? Tammy shook her head. No, I just placed it there. I didn't want to screw anything up, so I left it for you to turn on once you got here. I thought for a long moment. Tammy, are you messing with me? No, what do you mean? I never plugged this in. I never touched this thing until now. That's when it dawned on us. Nothing that occurred during the fake seance was of our doing. I have no explanation for any of it. But oddly enough, Tammy's parents never experienced any paranormal activity in that house. Ever. Again. The Howling I'm a cross-country truck driver. I was hauling a load to a factory that had a remote location. The last leg of my trip was an old, eerie highway. This clearly had been a main highway at one time long ago, but now had been reduced to nothing more than a dark, lonely road that is rarely traveled. The buildings that I passed, which were likely bustling at one time, were now abandoned and beyond repair. It was sad and quite creepy. Most of the abandoned gas stations were of the full-service variety with a small building toward the back and an overhang over the gas pumps. Most of the overhangs appeared to be teetering on the edge of collapse. The worn paint had peeled to the extent that the names of these gas stations were now unreadable. I had passed an old cafe. The parking lot was riddled with cracks that vegetation had taken hold of. The main window of the cafe was shattered, allowing me to catch a glimpse of the old counter which had been blanched from the relentless glare of the sun. Graffiti stained the exterior of the cafe. I could read the sentence, Where the wolves run free. Whatever that meant. The most frightening abandoned location I passed was an ancient two-story motor lodge. The bright, vibrant colors that the facility once boasted were now shabby and worn. The metal rails on the second floor walkway were rusted over. The vacant office out front was weathered and too dark to see within. And there was something chilling about the single maid's cart still sitting outside of one of the motel rooms that sent shivers down my spine. I hadn't seen a soul since I turned onto the seemingly deserted highway and once the sun dropped, my headlights were swallowed by darkness. The full moon that loomed low in the sky did nothing to help. I flipped through the CB radio stations. I was hoping for some sign of life. 
All I found was warbled static. Fortunately, my CD player was working just fine, and a medley of country music was my version of whistling past the graveyard on this unnerving stretch of road. It was getting late, and I was growing very tired. I started keeping an eye out for the least spooky spot I could find to pull over and get a few hours of shut-eye before continuing on. Finally, I happened across an old rust area. It was just off of the highway. The structure that once housed the restrooms was partially collapsed, and the parking area was barely visible through the thick layer of crabgrass. But this would do. I pulled over and parked my truck. I was spreading my sleeping bag out over the back cab of my truck when I heard a distant howl. It sounded like a wolf, but the howl was monstrously deep. I was just glad it was far away. If it were any closer, I may have just popped a couple caffeine pills and drove another hour. I listened to the silence of the night for several more minutes. I was about to get back to tending my bedding when I heard the howl again. It sounded considerably closer. I turned my attention from my bedding to my overnight bag where I kept those caffeine pills. I didn't like taking those things as they made my heart race, but the howling was freaking me out. As I searched through my bag, a deafening crack of static followed by a booming voice rang over the CB. It nearly sent me through the roof of my truck. Did you hear that? The voice was deep and very clear. There was no static or interference. He had to be near me. He was answered by a man with a high-pitched tinny voice. I did. I'm in my garage getting ready. That tipped me off that these two were talking from their home base CBs. I listened on for a minute waiting for them to say something else. The silence was broken by another spine-tingling howl. This time, it sounded like it was just outside my truck. The deep voice rang in again. That sounded close. The tinny voice concurred. Yeah, it must have smelled something it wanted. I hope nobody is on the old highway tonight. I leaned forward in the front of my truck and plucked the CB from its holder and interrupted their conversation. Hello? I'm on the old highway. What are you guys talking about? What, what is with this howling? It sounds like it's right outside my truck. There was radio silence for about 30 seconds before the deep-voiced man spoke softly. Lock your doors. I knew my doors were already locked, but I double-checked and confirmed. The deep-voiced man gave me more instructions. Stay still. No matter what you hear outside your truck, do not move. The tinny-voiced man spoke up. And for God's sake, don't try to drive away. Okay, I won't move and I won't drive away. Can you tell me what the hell is going on? Where are you? I'm parked at the old rest stop. Just stay there, we're on the way. Another howling burst seemed to shake the cab of my truck and was followed by the sound of the metal on my truck's doors being popped in as if something heavy bumped against the cab of the truck. Then the truck began gently rocking back and forth. 
I ducked down behind the seat so as not to be able to be seen, but otherwise did as the men on the CB instructed and remained still. After a moment, the rocking stopped, but I could hear heavy breathing on the other side of the truck's window. Actually, it wasn't breathing so much as it was sniffing. I could hear footsteps crunching against the cool crabgrass, and they were growing distant. Whatever was outside my vehicle was walking away. This gave me a slight sense of relief, and I couldn't help but rise up and peek outside my window to see exactly what it was. At first I thought it was a gigantic wolf with short hair and rippling muscles, but there was something about its face that seemed too wide for a wolf, and the ears were unusually long and void of hair. I gasped when the creature stood up on its hind legs and started walking around as it sniffed the air. It must have been seven feet tall and was bigger than a bear. I could see its sharp-toothed jaws gnashing together. Its eyes were flaming red like scorching ovals of metal. This was some kind of damned werewolf. Then it turned quickly. I didn't have time to duck down out of sight before it saw me. It stared at me but wasn't moving. It was studying me as if it wasn't sure what I was. My heart was beating out of my chest, but I remained frozen in terror, doing my best to obey the instructions of the men and not move. When the werewolf slowly lurched forward in my direction, I lost it. I let out a scream, hopped into the driver's seat, and roared the engine to life. As soon as I stepped on the gas and peeled out of the primitive rest stop area, I heard the creature's roar, and within seconds it leapt onto the hood and smashed its gigantic claws through the windshield and reached out for my throat. I slammed onto the brakes, hoping the sudden stop would send the monster hurling off the truck and onto the pavement. But that didn't happen. The werewolf barely budged and continued to reach out for me as it let out a horrific growl. The sound of the growl was overtaken by the blast of a gun, and then another, and another. Even though I knew the beast was gone, I let out a startled scream when my driver's side door was yanked open. Damn it, I told you not to drive away! It was the CB men. They had scared off the creature and saved me from certain death. The werewolf's eyesight is based on movement. If you don't move, it won't see you. When you drove off, it was like ringing the damn dinner bell. The two men gave me a bottle of water and time to regain my composure before they began to question me. What the hell are you doing out here? I'm delivering a load to a company in this area. The Golston Company? I nodded. I guess there weren't many operating companies in this neck of the woods because that was exactly where I was taking this shipment. Let me see the shipment papers. The request was a little unusual, but I wasn't about to argue with the two men who just saved my life, so I handed the info over to them. They both looked the paperwork over for a few seconds before one pointed something out to the other. They shook their heads and then handed the papers back to me. I think you missed the instructions on the bottom of the paperwork. 
The man held the paper in front of my face and pointed to the line in question, which read, Do not travel into this area during a full moon. If you like what you're hearing, please consider contributing. Any amount helps. Recurring monthly contributions are best of all. Just go to maniacontheloose.com slash support. That's maniacontheloose.com slash support. The Thing in the Ground I'm a farmer. I was plowing my field when the plow hit something hard below the surface of the ground. I got off my tractor and cleared as much dirt as I could with my hands. I was able to uncover a corner of the object. It appeared to be metallic and had sharp edges, giving me the impression that it was some kind of a box. As I removed more of the dirt, I uncovered a metal ring that was welded to the back of the object. I fastened one end of a chain to the ring and another to the back of my tractor and was able to successfully remove the entire object from the ground. When I hopped off my tractor and viewed the object in its entirety, there was no mistaking what it was. A metal casket. It tapered slightly toward the top and the bottom, giving an extremely rudimentary shape of a body. I stood looking at it for a few minutes, wondering what I should do. Should I just rebury it? Open it? Alert somebody? The decision was made for me the moment I heard the pounding noise coming from inside the casket. Somebody was in there and was trying to get out. I raced to remove a crowbar from the toolbox on the back of my tractor. I attempted to pry the casket open. If this was a wooden casket, I could have pried it apart, but this was a metal casket and wasn't giving in so easily. I noticed a latch on the side of the casket that was holding it shut. I began wailing away at the latch as the pounding from within continued. Finally, the latch broke free, and I quickly pulled the casket lid open. The first thing I noticed was that the top interior of the casket was dented and covered with scratch marks. When I looked down and saw what was inside the casket, I was shocked, although I shouldn't have been. I saw a skeleton dressed in a black suit. Obviously, these remnants of a once-living human being were not capable of pounding on the casket. Something else had to be in there with it. I carefully removed the frail remains from the casket and discovered that there was absolutely nothing sharing the casket with the body. 
I had no earthly explanation as to what the hell was bashing on the casket from within, so my mind drifted toward another mystery. Who was this? My family had owned this farmland for over a century. Only one person owned this property prior to them. I didn't know who that person was, but I had a hunch it was the skeleton staring at me from the casket. I have a friend named Gussie who owns the local feed shop. He's an old man and a historian that knows more about this area than anyone. If anybody knew about the mystery surrounding the man in the metal casket, it would be him. I arrived at the feed store during a downtime which worked out great because Gussie had plenty of time to talk. I explained to him exactly what happened. He sat down and took it all in for a few moments and went over things in his head. Once he was ready, he explained everything. Rafe Hollister was the name of the original owner of your property. Word is he ran quite the operation, employed dozens of farmhands. Rafe was one of the people who came down with the illness. Illness? What illness? Nobody rightly knows. It was a mysterious illness that swept through the town in the early 1900s. Those who caught the disease died quickly. Rafe was the first one to come down with the illness. Thus he was the first one to die. I knew they had buried him on the property, but didn't know exactly where until today. Others died as well? Gussie nodded. A week later, the second person caught the illness. It was Rafe's foreman, Floyd. Floyd died as quickly as Rafe did, but a funny thing happened. They held a memorial service for Floyd, and just as they were about to lay the casket into the ground, they heard pounding from within the casket. They quickly opened it up and found that Floyd was alive. Turns out all those who caught the illness gave the appearance of being dead, but would wake up fit as a fiddle within a few days. Dozens of people caught the sickness and the same thing happened to all of them. By all intents and purposes, they appeared to be dead. But they weren't. They were alive. When I realized what this meant, my knees began to shake and I had to sit down. So Rafe Hollister was... Gussie nodded and finished my sentence for me. Buried alive. The Hitchhiker I killed my wife. I know that sounds bad, but believe me, she was annoying as hell. She just nagged and nagged and nagged. I swear she never shut up. So I killed her. I'm sure most people would have done the same thing, don't you think? After I killed her, I laid her body out on the bed and covered her up with a blanket. 
Due to her annoying nature, she wasn't very popular, so nobody would come looking for her straight off. I emptied out our bank accounts and decided to get as far away from the scene of the crime as possible. Southern California seemed pretty far from Nashville, so I decided to head out that direction. I figured I had two or three days before the smell of my wife's decomposing body got so bad that the landlord would investigate. He'd find the body and the cops would put two and two together pretty quick. They would be looking to lynch me. They'd have to find me first, and I didn't intend on making that easy on them. Maybe once I got to California I could sneak over the border into Mexico. Unfortunately, my car was in the shop. I didn't think this out in advance. This murder was impulsive, not premeditated, so I had to plan things on the fly. I went to a nearby truck stop and paid a trucker to give me a lift. He got me all the way to Arizona. The spot he dropped me off was quite rural, just a factory and a diner. I got a bite to eat and offered several people some cash to take me to California, but I got no takers, so I decided to hitch a ride. I must have walked for two hours before someone finally stopped. The vehicle was a red convertible with the top down. The driver was puffing on a cigar. He looked about the same age as me and we shared the same graying hair color. He was wearing a button-up shirt and tie and had his sleeves rolled up. Sitting comfortably on his head was a dark gray fedora with a red feather in the band. Neither of us said anything for the longest time, which was just fine with me. The truck driver who had gotten me this far was a real chatty Cathy. I leaned back in my seat and enjoyed the dry desert air flowing through my hair. I knew it wouldn't be long before I was constantly looking over my shoulder, a fugitive from the law. So I was soaking this freedom in while I could. Finally, the fedora-wearing stranger broke the silence. Hand me that pack of cigarettes out of the glove box. I did so, and he impressed me by managing to light the cigarette with the wind relentlessly gusting in his face. He was obviously a smoking pro. He offered me one, but I politely declined. I don't blame you. It's a nasty habit, and it will undoubtedly be the death of me. As he handed the pack back to me, I noticed a bloody bandage on his forearm. He caught me gawking at it. A real beauty, huh? You wouldn't believe my crazy wife. She did this to me. I had to rough her up for that. Well, we had something in common. We both had wife problems. Only I killed mine. Damn, I said. My wife was always annoying as hell, but she wasn't dangerous. The man smirked. Oh, where's the fun in that? He took a long drag off of his cigarette. You know how to drive? Yeah, you want me to take over for a while? If you don't mind, I'm getting tired. He pulled over and we swapped positions. He nodded off pretty quick. I drove for hours and watched the sunset behind the silhouette of a mammoth mountain. It wasn't long after that when I heard a clap of thunder. I nudged the sleeping man. 
I think there's a storm up ahead. We'd better put the top up. He didn't move, so I nudged him again. Hey, buddy, we, we need to get this top up. I prodded him again, and this time his body slumped forward and his head fell back. His eyes were open and lifeless. I guess he was right. Those cigarettes were the death of him. I panicked and pulled over recklessly. My head was swimming with thought. Now what was I going to do? I couldn't flag anyone down for help. They'd call the paramedics and they'd start asking questions. Then an idea quickly formed in my head. I searched him and found his wallet. He had over 300 bucks in cash. I tucked the wallet in my front pants pocket, got out of the car and opened his door. I pulled his body off of the road and concealed it behind a couple of bushes. Nobody would find his body until the next day at the earliest, and I had his wallet so he wouldn't be easy to identify. I sped away into the night. If I could just make it to California, I could ditch the car in a parking lot and hoof it across the border into Mexico. Then I'd be home free. All I had to do was avoid any cop until then. This was the very thought going through my mind when I saw the flashing red and blue lights dancing in my rearview mirror. At this point, I had to assume they had found my wife and I was wanted. I thought the jig was up and that I'd be spending the rest of my days in the clink. Then it dawned on me. I had the smoking man's wallet and driver's license. We shared roughly the same build and a slight resemblance to each other. Maybe, just maybe, I could pull it off. When the cop approached, I rolled down my window and played it cool. Evening, officer. What seems to be the problem? He stood stoically and held a blank expression. License and registration, please. I handed him the other man's license and registration and crossed my fingers. The cop looked back and forth from the license to me multiple times. My heart was racing like a thoroughbred, but I held a fake smile in hopes that the cop wouldn't detect my fear. Mr. Pipano? My phony smile grew as my hands became slick with sweat. That's me. He stepped back and motioned to me. Step out of the vehicle, please. He wasn't buying it. I contemplated jumping from the car and dashing away, but he'd shoot me down. Uh, what's the issue, officer? Just step out of the vehicle. I let out a deep breath and followed his instructions. Step around the back. I assumed he was going to shove me over the trunk, handcuff me, and read me my rights. Instead, he pointed to a long piece of fabric that was hanging out of the trunk. It looked like a part of a coat. That thing was flapping around in the wind and covering one of your tail lights, which could be dangerous. It took a moment for it to register. He had no idea. He thought I was Mr. Pepino. I was home free. I popped open the trunk to push the fabric back inside. Holy shit. I wasn't sure if I said that or if the cop did as we both stood staring in shock at the grisly scene within the trunk. 
It was a dead woman. Later, I found out it was Mr. Pepino's wife. Evidently, his idea of roughing up his wife was bashing her head in with a hammer. By the time I was able to prove that I wasn't Mr. Pepino, my name was circulating through the system. They arrested me for the murder of my wife. If you like scary stories and you want to support the show, buy some of my books. I have a whole slew of them, and most of them are just 99 cents. Go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. Again, this is a great way to support the show. That's maniacontheloose.com slash books. Flippy. I work in the city and take a bus to work. It was a Friday and I was running late, so the bus stop was crowded. The benches were full, so I stood and waited. When the bus arrived, everyone got up and shuffled into the bus like sheep. I was the last one in line. As I waited in the slowest molasses moving line, I peered around at my surroundings and something on the bench caught my eye. It was a vintage Gisby. If you don't know what a Gisby is, it's an obscure toy from the late 1980s. It's a robotic toy with a round head, facial features that resemble a pug dog, and a mouth that looks like a beak. It has huge round eyes with elliptical pupils and ears like an elephant. They have short stubby legs and no arms. No two Gisbys were the same. They all had their own unique skin type. Some were smooth-skinned, some were bumpy, some had scales, some had fur, and they came in a variety of colors. The robotic aspect of Gisby allowed it to blink and open its mouth. It could talk too, but its vocabulary was limited. It would make chirpy sounds, tell you what its name was, and spit out a few other random sentences on occasion. They couldn't walk, but they would periodically rock back and forth. This particular Gisby was covered in short black fur and had a white mohawk. I could see that it was functional because it was sitting there on the bench, blinking. Since the majority of the people were still waiting in line to get on the bus, I called out, Did someone forget their Gisby? It's sitting on the bench. Most of the people looked back at the toy and shrugged or shook their head. I was tempted to take it. I'm a single mom and my eight-year-old daughter would love it, but I figured some child forgot it and would come back looking for it, so I left it. That night, when the bus dropped me off at the stop after work, I was surprised that the Gisby was still there on the bench. Its round eyes were looking at me. It blinked quickly a few times and rocked back and forth. And then it spoke with a high-pitched, childlike voice. Hello, 
My name is Flippy. It had been sitting on that bench all day. Whoever it belonged to clearly wasn't coming back for it. The Gisby was just too adorable not to take it home with me, so I took it and gave it to my daughter Jill. She fell in love with Flippy. She carried that goofy thing with her everywhere. She talked to it and sometimes it would talk back. Whenever it made a noise, she giggled. I had never seen her so happy. At least for the first week. Then things started to change. I had been allowing Jill to bring Flippy with her to school. I didn't see the harm in that until I got a call from the school principal. Jill had gotten into trouble for biting one of her classmates. When questioned about why she would do such a thing, Jill said that Flippy told her to do it. I didn't let her take Flippy to school with her anymore. One night, Jill came up to me while I was doing the dishes and said, I think you're pretty, but Flippy says you're ugly. Well, you can tell Flippy he's no prize himself. I won't tell him you said that. He'll get angry. A few nights later, Jill came running out of her room screaming and crying. She wrapped her arms around me and held me tight. When I tried to console her and ask her what was wrong, she told me that Flippy scared her. You love Flippy. What did he do to scare you? He said mean things. When I pressed her for more specifics, she started crying harder, so I backed off. Can I sleep in your room tonight, Mommy? I had made the mistake of letting Jill sleep in the bed with me until she was seven. It had been very difficult to get her to sleep alone in her own room, but she had been doing well with it the past year and I didn't want to hamper her progress by letting her sleep with me again, even though I had a difficult time saying no. She compromised by asking if it would be okay if Flippy slept in my room. I said, of course he can. I placed Flippy on the dresser that was across from my bed. Flippy stared at me for a few minutes and then his eyelids fell shut and he started making snoring sounds before powering off and going silent. I didn't even know Gisby's could do that. I dozed off shortly after he did. In the middle of the night, I was awakened by subtle giggling. It was Flippy. I turned on my bedside lamp. Flippy's eyes were wide open. He was staring blankly at me. It was really starting to creep me out, so I got up and turned him around. When I got back in bed, I could hear the mechanical clicking of his eyelids blinking, followed by snoring and silence. The next morning when I woke up, Flippy was facing me. Obviously, at some point that morning, Jill had come into my room, saw that Flippy's back was to me, and turned him around. I mean, what else could it be? Even so, Flippy was giving me the willies, so I didn't want him in my bedroom either. So when the next night rolled around, we left Flippy in the kitchen. During the night, I was awakened by a voice coming from the kitchen. Initially, I assumed it was Flippy. The Gisby toys would often speak after they woke up from their sleep mode. 
But what alarmed me was that I wasn't hearing the normal high-pitched childlike voice of Flippy. This sounded like a man's voice. I bolted out of my bed, rushed to the kitchen and turned on the light. Flippy was on the counter. His big eyes were staring directly at me. He blinked and then sent shivers down my spine when he spoke. My name is Flippy. The childlike voice was no more. He sounded like an adult male. I wanted to believe that Flippy's batteries were wearing down, causing the voice to deepen. That wouldn't be unusual for battery-operated toys that spoke. But the voice didn't sound slow and drained as I would imagine. It was strong and distinct. The next day, I was in the midst of cooking dinner when Jill took Flippy into her room. Even though Jill no longer liked to have Flippy sleep with her, she liked to play with him and would carry him around with her most of the time. I jumped when I heard Jill start shouting, No, no, no! I ran into her room. Jill, are you okay? What's wrong? Flippy is being bad. What is Flippy doing, sweetie? He's saying scary things. What is he saying? She ran to me and hugged me. She didn't want to tell me. This was getting very strange, and I was about to take Flippy to the garbage can outside, but I wanted to know exactly what he was saying that she considered scary. I had a monitoring camera that I kept outside on the porch so I could see who it was when anyone knocked on the door. I moved that camera to Jill's room. After she calmed down, I went back to cooking but kept an eye on the monitor and watched as Jill played in her room. Flippy was sitting on her nightstand as Jill played with some Barbie dolls. Within a few minutes I could see Flippy begin blinking his eyes and his beak-like mouth began to move as he spoke. The voice that emerged from Flippy sent chills down my body. The voice was deep and raspy and there was no mistaking what Flippy said. Kill Mommy. I immediately called my neighbor and asked her to watch Jill for me while I disposed of Flippy. I didn't even feel comfortable throwing Flippy in the garbage can outside. He'd still be too close to the house, so I decided to drive to a nearby mini-mall and throw him in one of the store's dumpsters. As I drove into the parking lot, I noticed that one of the stores was an old antique store, and they had some vintage toys in the window. I decided to take Flippy in there. I was hoping the store owner would have more information on these Gisby toys, and maybe he could let me know if the terrifying events we were experiencing were a common defect with them. The store owner was an elderly gentleman, and he was quite familiar with the Gisbys. He did say they malfunctioned often, and that's why they weren't on the market for long. But he said he never heard any of them giving commands to kill. He found the whole thing amusing and was convinced that all the issues we were experiencing were due to low batteries. When batteries on toys like these get low, the sounds they make can be quite disturbing. You said one day the voice was childlike, the next day it was more like a man's voice, and the following day it was deep and hoarse. That sounds like a classic case of batteries depleting. And I'm sure you thought you heard the words kill mommy, 
But when batteries lose their juice, the words toys like this say become distorted and can be easily misconstrued. His explanation sure did make sense, and I was starting to feel a little bit at ease. Here, I'll put some new batteries in the toy, and you'll see that it'll be back to its old harmless self. When the store owner turned Flippy over and opened his battery compartment, he and I both let out a gasp at the same time. The battery compartment was empty. Hi, my name is Flippy. The List There's an abandoned high school about an hour from where I live. It's a sweeping two-story structure. It closed its doors forever in 1979 after some kind of structural issue resulted in the death of a student. The police in the town make a point to keep riffraff, vagrants, squatters, and drug users out of the building, but they don't mind if looky-loos come around for a gander and to take pictures. I had never been there until recently, and let me tell you, it's a surreal experience when you're standing in a classroom that is still full of desks, still has writing on the chalkboard, but has a huge tree growing directly through the center of it. When I was walking down one of the hallways, I noticed a locker that still had a lock on it. This intrigued me. At that time, there were only a couple other people wandering through the school as well. Once I saw them leave the building, I hurried back to my truck and removed a crowbar from the bed. I went back to that locker, busted the lock, and opened it. It was like a time capsule. On the back of the locker door was a picture of 1970s hottie Farrah Fawcett. On the shelf of the locker there was an old English book, calculus book, history book, and chemistry book. The spines were warped and pages worn. These books were heavily used. On the back cover of each textbook was a name written in ballpoint pen. Andy Garrett. There were several folders on the floor of the locker. They were filled with worksheets, various writing assignments, and quizzes. Apparently, Andy Garrett was quite the brain, as all of the completed assignments were graded with A's. Some were even A+. Other than the time capsule aspect of it all, there wasn't anything too interesting in the locker. That's what I thought, anyway, until I spotted a notebook. It was a standard-sized spiral notebook with a dark blue cover. Sloppily written on the front of the notebook were the words, The List. I opened it and thumbed through it. At first glance, it appeared to be a kind of journal or diary that this kid, Andy Garrett, had been writing. But upon closer inspection, it was a little more complex than that. The notebook entitled, The List, read as follows. September 11th, 1978. First day of high school. 
I hope I don't get initiated. I hope I make some friends. November 20th, 1978. I haven't been initiated and I think that threat has now passed. But I have no friends. Everyone mostly ignores me. November 27th, 1979. The head cheerleader, Bonnie Rowland, talked to me today. I sit next to her in history class. During today's quiz, she asked me if I knew the answer to question number eight. I told her. She smiled and thanked me. I think I'm in love. December 11th, 1978. Chad Murray is the definition of a dumb jock. He pushed me down today. I dropped all my books and papers all over the floor. It took me five minutes to pick it all up. Bonnie Rowland saw it happen. How embarrassing. Chad Murray is officially on my list. January 8th, 1979. I wish Christmas break would never end. I hate this crappy school. It's old and dilapidated. There are visible cracks in the foundation and in most of the corners near the ceiling. The sink water smells of rust. I think the rails on the stairs are original from the 1920s when this place was built. They're so rickety. It's only a matter of time before there's some kind of accident. I can't imagine going here for four years. January 25th, 1979. I walked in on Chad Murray and his merry band of followers smoking in the bathroom. He threatened to beat my ass if I told anyone. He then proceeded to lock me in a stall. It took me a long time to get out. I was late for English class. My bitch of a teacher, Mrs. Farrow, gave me detention. She didn't even give me the opportunity to explain why I was late. She hates me because I'm smarter than her. Mrs. Farrow is on my list. February 6th, 1979. Chad Murray stole my lunch money today after punching me in the stomach. I'm not sure I can take this abuse for the rest of the year. He's always pushing me around. I'm thinking of killing myself. February 23rd, 1979. The only reason I haven't killed myself yet is because Bonnie talks to me in history once in a while, mostly when she needs an answer to a quiz. Her acknowledgement of me is worth living for. March 22nd, 1979. Chad Murray tripped me in the boys' locker room. I fell and cut my head. I went crying to the physical education teacher, Mr. Rollins. He yelled at me for crying and told me to stop being a baby. When I told him that Chad Murray tripped me, he scolded me for being a tattletale. Mr. Rollins is on my list now.
April 17, 1979 I spend a lot of time spying on Chad Murray. I want to know his routine better than he does. I have a plan. May 10th, 1979 Prom is coming up. I'm going to ask Bonnie if she wants to go with me. I'm so nervous. May 14th, 1979 I finally worked up the nerve to ask Bonnie to prom. She laughed in my face. Later I found out she is going with Chad Murray. Bonnie Rowland is now on my list. May 21st, 1979 Today is the day. Chad Murray always bolts from his fourth period algebra class and runs down the stairs. If it weren't for the stair rails, he'd tumble over the side of the stairs and fall. I loosen the stair rail. May 21st, 1979 it worked. Chad Murray fell to his death. I guess I can cross him off my list now. May 23rd, 1979 There is much outrage over Chad's death. Everyone thinks it was an accident due to the faulty nature of this crappy building. There is talk of the building being condemned. June 1st, 1979 It's the last day of school. The building is officially closing after today. All because of Chad Murray's accident. This was kind of like killing two birds with one stone. Because if they didn't close the school, I was planning on burning it to the ground. That was the last entry in the notebook. I was in shock. I couldn't believe what I had read. This kid, Andy Garrett, had killed a fellow student and no one suspected a thing. He got away with it. And that got me thinking about the rest of his list. Bonnie Rowland, Mrs. Farrow, and Mr. Rollins. Whatever happened to them? so I started looking into it. My girlfriend is big into true crime and has a network of contacts within that community ranging from amateur sleuths, private detectives, law enforcement agents, and lawyers. I showed her the notebook and she was fascinated. The first thing she did was track down the whereabouts of the remaining three people on Andy Garrett's list. Turns out they were all deceased. Mr. Rollins died in a car accident in the summer of 1979. Apparently his brakes went out and he slammed into a tree. Later that summer, Mrs. Farrow's house caught on fire. She burned to death. And that very same summer, Bonnie Rowland was home alone and fell from her upstairs bedroom window. She broke her neck and died instantly. Her parents suspected foul play, 
but the police found no evidence to support that claim. We looked into the current whereabouts of Andy Garrett, but came up empty. He did finish high school with honors, he earned a scholarship to an Ivy League school, and then dropped off the map. His parents are deceased, and he was an extreme loner and had no close friends. We did give all the information we had on this case to the police, and they looked into it but didn't find anything substantial. They never did seem to take it seriously, to the point where they suggested that the notebook was a hoax. I'd like to think that it was a hoax too, but I know it's not. This was confirmed the day I opened my mailbox and found a handwritten note that read, Stop snooping or I'll put you on my list. If you like the Maniac and the Loose Scary Stories podcast, please subscribe on whatever platform you listen on. Feel free to leave a nice review, too, if you like. And don't be shy about letting other people know about the show. All of these things help us out a ton, and we appreciate it very much. If you like horror movies, you'd probably like some cool horror movie t-shirts. Amazon has a ton of them. Go to maniacontheloose.com slash shirt. This will take you to Amazon's horror t-shirt page. By going through my link, Amazon gives me a small percentage of the profit instead of keeping it all for themselves. That's maniacontheloose.com slash shirt. Cabin in the Woods Once a year, my buddy Craig and I take a four-day weekend getaway from our wives. We usually get a cabin in the Smoky Mountains in the Gatlinburg, Tennessee area. Normally, the cabin we get is in a rural area amongst other cabins. On this particular trip, we were given an extremely secluded cabin that was toward the top of the mountain. We had to drive up a long, thin, winding gravel road to get there. The view was spectacular and it was kind of nice not having any other cabins anywhere near us. We sometimes get a little rowdy when we drink and we're both metalheads. We like to be able to turn the volume knob all the way up to 11 without disturbing anybody else. After a nice barbecue dinner and downing a 12-pack of suds, we decided to call it a night and hit the hay. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning when Craig entered my room and woke me up. Hey man, did you hear that? I sleep like the dead so I hadn't heard a thing. No, what was it? It sounded like an animal right outside the cabin. The Smoky Mountains are inhabited by many black bears. I was about to ask if that's what he thought it was, but he answered my question before I could ask it. It's definitely not a bear. How do you know? Just listen. We stopped talking and listened to the silence for about a minute before we heard it. 
It sounded like it was directly outside my bedroom window, and Craig was correct. There was no way that was a bear. It was high-pitched. At first, I thought it was a woman screaming, but upon hearing it a second time, there was no way that was human. It was more like a guttural, growling roar, coupled with raspy wheezing. We could hear its footsteps stomping through the brush. The steps gradually faded away, as if it had moved around toward the front of the cabin. Just as we heard another screeching roar, the electricity in the cabin went out. We both fumbled around in the dark for a moment until we found a flashlight. We then proceeded to cautiously step into the hallway of the cabin and walk to the front room. I shined the light forward and found the front door to be wide open. It was possible the door wasn't shut well and a gust of wind blew it open, but Craig was emphatic that was not possible. I remember checking to make sure that door was shut before I went to bed. Immediately after completing his sentence, we heard heavy, thudding footsteps at the end of the corridor from which we came. I shined my light down the corridor but saw nothing, so we both slowly, carefully, walked down the hallway and looked in Craig's room. It was empty, but while we were in his room, we heard footsteps coming from my room. We both hurried back to my room and did a thorough search, but there was nothing in there. Then we heard the front door slam shut and the electricity came back on. When we stepped back into the front room, the door was indeed closed. We opened it and shined the light around the immediate area but saw nothing unusual. However, off in the woods by the side of the house, we heard one more departing roar. We have no idea what it was that we encountered that night, but the next morning we called the rental company and moved to another cabin on the other side of town. Witness. I'm the kind of gal that most people would refer to as a roller coaster nut. I've ridden them all. The higher and the more twists, turns, and loops, the better. How lucky for me that there is an amusement park just 10 minutes from my house. I have a season pass and go there at least once a week. Sometimes I just pop in, ride one or two roller coasters, and then head home. That was the case on the night in question. I work as internal technical support for an office building. I spend most of my day resetting people's passwords and during downtime I'm surfing the internet. It's an easy job, so I won't complain, but sitting at a desk for eight hours straight often has me feeling like a caged animal by the end of the day. But that's nothing a quick spin on a roller coaster won't cure. As I headed for the amusement park on my way home from work, tiny splinters of rain started pelting my windshield. It was slightly heavier than a mist. Now, 
for most people heading to an amusement park to ride a roller coaster, the appearance of rain would be a major bummer. But for me, it did nothing more than bring a smile to my face. I don't mind a little rain, but most people do, and rain sends the majority of amusement park attendees scurrying for shelter like cockroaches when a light is turned on. Hell, a lot of people will leave the park altogether. I call it weeding out the wimps. With all those wimps out of the way, there is usually no line waiting to get on the roller coasters. Or if there is, the wait is no more than two or three minutes. As I arrived, hordes of people were spilling out of the amusement park into the parking lot and hurrying to their vehicles. Pathetic wimps. I had a frolic to my step as I flashed my season pass and made my way toward a thrill ride. There were three prominent roller coasters at this park. The Centipede, which was a twisty roller coaster chock full of loops. Another option was the Megaforce, which was a stand-up roller coaster. And then there was my personal favorite, the Screaming Banshee. This was just a good old-fashioned towering roller coaster with a massive drop. That was where I was headed and my calculations proved correct. There was absolutely no line at all. I walked right on. Not only that, there was nobody else there. I had the entire roller coaster to myself. This was a first. I got in the front seat and leaned back in a relaxed position as the track's chains clanked and knocked, vibrating the coaster as it pushed it toward the top of the mammoth hill. This was the part of the ride where the majority of people were the most nervous. The long, slow trip to the top of the hill that leaves them plenty of time to think about the stomach-churning drop that was in their immediate future. There was no turning back. They were locked in and had to accept their fate. Me, on the other hand, I enjoyed the view that the Screaming Banshee's enormous hill provided. It was the tallest roller coaster in the park, and you could see things from the top that you couldn't see elsewhere. The surrounding landscape was breathtaking from the top of the Screaming Banshee, but I liked to look down onto the park like a bird floating overhead. I'd watch the ant-like people from above and follow them with my eyes, knowing that they have no idea that they are being watched. On this day, there weren't many people to watch since most people were wimps who ran away, but there were a few brave souls still out and about. Most were waiting out the rain under the shelter of various buildings' overhangs. A few were strolling through the park without a care as if it was a bright and sunny day, and some, like me, were racing through the turnstiles as they rushed to jump on a ride. As I scanned over the entire park for my miraculous position, I noticed a suspicious-looking man standing by the corner of a restroom. He was dressed in black and seemed to have a dark mask on, perhaps a ski mask? He was crouched down, clearly attempting to not be seen. Within a few seconds, an attractive woman stepped out of the restroom. She was alone. There was nobody else around except for the man in black, and he pounced. He rushed the woman from behind and put his hand over her mouth. He was very rough with her and shook her around like a rag doll. 
I could see her doubling over in pain as the man delivered several blows to her midsection. He then pinned her against the wall and withdrew a knife from his jacket. As the screaming banshee roller coaster reached the top of the mountainous hill, I saw the man raise the knife high into the air. He brought it down with fury into the woman's chest just before the screaming banshee plunged me down the steep hill. Blades of rain were stinging my arms as the roller coaster raced down the tracks. I was screaming at the top of my lungs not from the effect of the ride, but rather from the disturbing image I had just witnessed that was now etched in my mind. When the ride ended, the attendants initially thought the tears streaming down my face were due to the fear of the ride, but realized the truth when I hysterically told them what I witnessed. The attendants called security and I explained everything. I led them to the restroom that I saw the attack take place, but there was no dead woman, no man in black, no blood, no sign of any foul play whatsoever. They asked me again and again if I was sure this is where the assault took place and I told them I was positive because I was. I knew this amusement park like the back of my hand. This was where it happened. I showed them right where he was standing and the exact spot he pinned her against the wall. But there was no evidence to corroborate my story. The security guards and police took down everything I told them and said they'd continue to look into it but it reached a point where I could tell they thought I was at best mistaken, or at worst, making the whole thing up. After they all dispersed, I stood there alone looking at the exact spot that he stabbed her, and I wondered if he was still nearby. Perhaps he was watching me. That thought sent shivers down my spine. Maybe he wouldn't be keen on letting the only witness live to tell her tale. And he had already proved that he could get away with murder. If you want to support the show and you shop on Amazon, instead of getting there by going to Amazon.com, go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash Amazon. By doing this, you're still going to Amazon.com. Everything is the same, including the prices. Nothing is different except Amazon gives me a small percentage of the profit instead of keeping it all for themselves. It's a great way to support the show by doing something you were going to do anyway. Get to Amazon by going to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash Amazon. Dead on arrival. It was the late 1950s. I lived in a small podunk town and was five years into my marriage with my wife, Jane. What a mistake. She was a first-class bitch. Of course, I had no idea of that when I married her. I guess that's what I get for marrying someone two weeks after meeting them. 
I did some dumb things when I was young, but that decision took the cake. It was about a month into the marriage when the annoyances began. She would get upset at the smallest things. Half the time I had no idea what it was, I could just see that she was stewing. I'd ask her what was wrong, and she'd speak shortly, saying nothing, in a way that clearly meant something. It would take a few days later to finally get her to confess what the problem was, and it was usually on the level of me not recognizing that she got a haircut. Before I got married, I used to go out with the guys every Tuesday night and go bowling. I was a damn good bowler. I was the only guy in the history of our bowling alley to score a perfect game. They even had a picture of me up on the wall. Once I got married, Jane made me stop bowling. She said she didn't want me hanging out with my Neanderthal friends anymore. She wanted me to spend Tuesday evenings with her. But hell, I spent every evening with her. I needed a night out once in a while. I tried to explain that to her, but she'd turn it around and lay a guilt trip on me as if I were neglecting her. Jane was also the worst backseat driver in the history of the world. She would constantly voice her concern over every little thing as if I didn't have eyes and couldn't see such things for myself. Eventually, I'd get frustrated and raise my voice to her, which would send her over the deep end and we'd wind up fighting for the next week. I have a whole new wardrobe since I married. Not of my choosing. I was always a jeans and t-shirt kind of guy. But over the years, the shirts and ties Jane bought me dominated my closet. She'd even pick out my clothes for each day. She could easily spend an entire day shopping. She'd try on every dress in the store, and she'd insist that I go with her. She knew I hated that, but she didn't care. She'd get mad and pout if I put up a fuss. And our sex life? Or should I say, what sex life? It was fine during the first year of marriage, but practically non-existent after that. After a few years, we'd constantly argue. It was practically every single day. Sure, sometimes I was at fault, but she was to blame at least half the time as well. But would she ever admit that she was wrong? Never. She had to try to win every argument. This, of course, meant she would never offer an apology. The list of irritations went on and on. My opinions meant nothing to her. She was constantly finding fault with me. She didn't like the way I combed my hair. My tie was crooked. I chewed with my mouth open. I snored. I breathed too heavy. It never ended. It got to the point where I dreaded coming home. I started working tons of overtime at work just so I could stay away from her a little longer. I learned to live with it all. That was a mistake, because learning to live with things you don't like isn't living at all. After one of our fights, I was so infuriated with her that I told her I was going to leave her. Jane's response was, I dare you. When I laid down in bed that night, her words echoed through my mind. I dare you. I dare you. I dare you. The next day, I decided I would take her up on that dare. When she went out to pick up a pack of cigarettes, I quietly skipped town. 
I moved away and started a new life. Six months later, I started feeling guilty. I shouldn't have snuck out like I did. I should have told her I was leaving. It would have been more therapeutic for me and would have ended things on a more definitive note. Even though I was enjoying my fresh new life, it always felt like there was a remnant of the past hanging over my head. I felt like it was my duty to see her face to face and let her know it was over. Hell, even though it seemed like she hated me, she might have been worried. So I decided to go back to that small podunk town and end things with her the correct way. I guess I needed some proper closure. The little podunk town looked the same. It appeared to have moved on just fine without me as I did without it. I wasn't sure what I was going to say to Jane when I stood face to face with her. I thought I'd just wing it, but I felt like I needed a good stiff drink before I made my way to the house. I stopped at the old bowling alley. When I stepped through the doors, I was met by the stench of stale cigars, bowling shoe deodorizer spray, and B.O. I felt like I was home again. I sat down at the bar. I could see the bartender was busy taking someone else's order, which was just fine with me. I wasn't in a rush. As I waited, I started gazing about the joint and my eyes stopped on my picture framed in the center of the wall. I looked good in the picture. My shirt was tucked in tight, which made me look thinner than I actually was. I was holding my bowling ball up in the air and expressed a genuine smile. I was happy that day. Above the picture was my name, followed by the words, Perfect Game. Then I noticed something odd underneath my photo. R.I.P. R.I.P. As in Rust in Peace? What the hell? I left the bowling alley and went on a private investigating mission. I stopped in the local library and used their microfilm machine to look through the newspapers from the town shortly after I left. It took me less than an hour to find my obituary. I was a loving husband who passed away silently in his sleep. Cause of death was due to bleeding ulcers. That was a nice touch. Anyone who knew me and how miserable I was in that marriage would believe that. She even had a funeral for me. I don't know how she managed to pull that one off, but she did. And judging from the photos in the paper, it was a nice turnout. I have to say I was quite furious. How proud could somebody be? She actually made everyone believe that I died, rather than admit that I was so fed up that I left her. Then it dawned on me. I could murder Jane and nobody would suspect it was me. After all, I was a dead man. That was her mistake. By going through the lengths that she did to hide the fact that I left her, to hide the fact that she lost, she inadvertently left me a get-out-of-jail-free card. I stealthily approached the house and made sure nobody spotted me as I entered the front door. 
I could see her moving about in the kitchen. I walked through the living room and stopped at the kitchen's entrance. Jane had her back to me as she did the dishes. Perfect. I withdrew a knife from the knife block on the counter and silently crept up behind her. I waited patiently until she finished the dishes and turned around, and then I sunk the knife deep into her abdomen. The knife went all the way through her body and out her back. So did my hand and arm. And then she stepped forward. She walked right through me and out of the kitchen. That's when I realized I really was dead. The bleeding ulcers angle wasn't just a nice touch. It was reality. Turns out, my trip back to that small, podunk town did bring some proper closure. Just not how I expected. you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com Sign up for our newsletter and I'll give you some free stuff. We'll see you soon. Very soon. Most big CBD companies are just middlemen buying from manufacturers and reselling to the customer at a higher price. Wouldn't you rather buy directly from the manufacturer? Well now you can with CBD Essence. They have a wide variety of full-spectrum lab-tested products including CBD for pets. The CBD is fresh, produced within 24 hours of shipment, 100% natural and organic, and uses the cleanest processing method. If you have any questions at all, their customer service is fantastic. Again, you're dealing directly with the manufacturer, so they know what they're talking about. Go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash CBD. Again, that's ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash CBD.